0: Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today I'm speaking with Brian Gallagher, good friend, old friend, but how, as the leader of a nonprofit, he is using our current crisis to really reimagine our future, not just take care of people, but reimagine our future. Brian Gallagher is the president and CEO of United Way Worldwide. We all know United Way because it's the world's largest privately funded nonprofit. Gallagher leads a global network that supports the health, education, and financial stability of individuals and families in more than 1800 communities. So I'm pleased to have my friend Brian with us today. Thanks for joining us, Brian. Jim, it's great to be with you. Thanks very much. So, Brian, let's start with this. Um, How's your spirit? How's your spirit in these times?
1: You know, my spirit's pretty good. Um, You know, I've been doing this a long time, have been through. Nothing quite like this before, but uh, been through 9-11 and Katrina and tsunami in South Asia. Um, you know, the isolation, the physical isolation is something that's obviously impacting all of us. I, uh, you know, I, the, the two things I try to do to, um, uh, you know, to kind of deal with my own, my own spirit, my own energy is I pray and meditate every day. And I also try to, in addition to dealing with the immediate, everything's right in your face right now, I try to keep my chin up and think about uh, what do we have to be thinking about three months from today and six months from today and a year from today. And it uh, taking the long view, while it's not always positive, it is helpful in terms of uh, trying to fill yourself with a little hope and, and reason.
0: Yeah. I think both the churched and unchurched among us are learning how to pray and meditate or be quiet every day and just think about what this means for us. We spoke earlier in the week, and you told me about how you believe the polarization in our country, which we've had for now such a long time, and has gotten worse and worse these last few years. Polarization in our country, as you said, atrophy our compassion and our common good muscle, atrophied. Yeah. Our compassion and our common good muscle. That really stayed with me. And you were hoping this crisis could build that up again. Uh, say more about that.
1: Yeah, you know, if over the last um, 20 years probably, and I'll, just in the U.S., but it's true in a lot of countries around the world, uh, we have systematically carved out the economic middle of our country. We've lost our middle class, by and large, become polarized economically. Uh, we then carved out our political middle. Um, you know, we seem to be at polar opposites, even though I don't think majority of Americans are at an extreme end politically. I think our political leaders are too too extreme. And that, and our politics is therefore driving us apart. And of most concern to me is over the last five, six years, maybe a little more, and certainly now intensifying is we're beginning to carve out our cultural middle, the things that um, hold us together. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, historically it was institutions that created social capital in our communities. you know, whether it was churches or nonprofit organizations, government, fraternities, whatever it might be. And we would go through those institutions to connect with each other. And that created social capital, this, you know, kind of informal bond that actually makes communities work. And fewer and fewer people are looking to institutions the way they used to, And then we've got some actors again in the mostly in the extreme political world that are are driving home this idea that, you know, if you don't feel um, successful economically, let me tell you who to blame. And that in combination, I think has, has uh, pushed us into our corners and we've become tribal almost. And what I mean about how this crisis might be a bit of an antidote for that is. You know, if you look at what happened after Katrina or what happened after 9-11, everybody did everything they could to help everybody that they could. There was no, you know, whatever the whatever the differences were, they got put aside. And but it was those were time limited and they were geographic and in, in focus. And this crisis is not time limited, I don't think. And um, it's certainly not geographic in its focus. We're all suffering the, the same way at different degrees. And I think we have to go back. If nothing else, it is, it is reminding us that, you know, you hear all the cliches and uh, whether it's from leaders or advertisement or whatever, that we're all in this together. And it's like, OK, well, what does that actually mean? Uh, it means that we should do whatever it takes for whoever is in need. And I think what we're seeing right now is that our systems, healthcare systems, education systems, economic systems have been so uneven. um, that you could have such a a much larger percentage of African Americans, for instance, dying of COVID than the majority whites in the, in the country. That, that's a reflection of how, how uneven it's been. And, and so I, my hope, and I'll I'll just speak for being the, the leader of United Way. It's my intention to try to get United Way back to where we began, which was not being program logic model driven, but actually being people and community driven. You know, we're a product of industrialization. And and uh, before there was the Harlem Ch- Children's Zone, there were settlement houses and there were our response. um as people trying to give help was really in neighborhoods and whatever people needed, we worked with them to provide the support that needed to be delivered whenever it needed to be delivered. And I think our systems have become so entrenched in our desire to um, prove that we're effective or efficient, um, that we've become so programmatic and that we have forgotten that we exist to help people. And I think we've been failing people for the last 20, 30 years. And this crisis is, instead of it just you know, kind of ripping the top off of New Orleans, it's, it's exposing the entire country. And I think um, it should remind us that we've got to build um, economic, political, and helping systems that are actually built for people, not for the systems themselves.
0: The Jane Addams settlement houses, right? Back in the old days. Yeah, day. exactly. They're exactly. the foundation of this, taking care of neighborhoods.
1: That's right. Hull House in Chicago. And, yeah. and I, you know, I can remember when I was almost 20 years ago now, and this is how programmatic we've become and how much inertia has um, impeded us from making the change we need to make. I was, I was the CEO of the United Way in Columbus, Ohio. And I can remember standing on a street corner in Columbus. We had made the shift to trying to be a, a social change organization instead of a fundraising organization. And we had this great network of settlement houses. Uh, but those settlement houses had learned how to go get program funding from United Way, from the city, from the county, from the state. And I was on the corner talking to essentially who the, the godfather of this network of settlement houses. And we were allocating to them $700,000 every year. And I said, Larry, I will go to our board and advocate of taking all the restrictions off that money. We'll give you $700,000 unrestricted. We don't care what programs you spend it on. We don't have to see program outcomes as long as you'll show us how it's you're working to improve your entire community. Um, and he couldn't do it. <laughs> he said, he said, no, I can't do it. It was there was too much risk. Um, that I, I get I I. I can see myself standing on that corner right now. And it's um, this crisis is showing us that, you know, um, having really efficient programs where you can brag that my after school program or my health access program is relatively more effective than that other one. So give me the money versus them. We got to change that.
0: Yeah. So you just said something that I think is really important. Um, how, how this, Coronavirus crisis has, has laid bare really, or shine, has been, has been shining a light on our inequities, our disparities in our health systems and all of our systems. And in particular, in the last few days, just the disparities, uh, uh for African Americans. And, you know, people say this, this virus doesn't discriminate. And medically, that may be true in terms of who's touched or politically, uh, for those who, who don't have access to safe houses, to social distance in our space or, or steady, reliable food or healthy food or, or access to medical care, uh, and doctors, advice, all of that, um, or have, have disease or uh, medical conditions that come from all these disparities—it's almost that racism and poverty are preconditions for this disease. And how, how are you seeing that? How is that being laid bare? How are you, as someone who looks over this whole thing, seeing that more clearly than ever before?
1: Well, we um, in the U.S. we uh, lead a um, we lead an effort um, called 211, which is a three-digit dial-up. Just like 911 for non emergencies across the US, 95% of all Americans have access to it. And um, we now are taking 75,000 calls a day. That's 20, that's on pace for 27 million in the year. We normally take 12 million calls or texts any given year. In fact, 31 governors have now pointed all their non emergency calls to 211. And when three weeks ago, when we looked at Um, what are the top calls? What are people calling for? And you call it, say, I need help for X. Um, Number one was, should I get treated or should I get tested? Do I have the coronavirus? Number two was, I don't have a medical home. I don't have a doctor. Um, So when you're you're watching a briefing and they say, if you have these symptoms, contact your medical provider. These folks don't have one. (laughs) Who are they supposed to contact? And then the third most um, asked question was um, or stated issue was, I don't have health insurance. There are 28 million people in the U.S. who don't have health insurance. We, did, we made progress with the Affordable Care Act, and we've, been, and we've been rolling that back over the last three years. So I don't, the, we have folks who don't have access to health care. Um, we, we, have, we have folks who don't have a doctor, who don't have a medical home. And if you're living in and the income disparity in the country has gotten a little better over the, last, over the last number of years, but we've essentially made no progress in 30 years. We've widened our the inequality by income. And essentially what that means is that in certain neighborhoods all across the country, rural and urban, people don't have access to good food. And so they're not eating great food. Their health isn't good. They don't have access to a primary physician. Uh, Many don't have health insurance, and it and and unfortunately, um, very often those are those are people of color. So it is not you know the our uh, the the institutional racism that exists in across our society, while not obvious to some, are completely obvious to others. And I think what this crisis has done is, is it's again I I. I think back to Katrina and when we pulled that, um, roof off of the city, what we found was, um, racism, poverty, despair, um, systems that weren't working. Um, and I think we're, we're now ripping the the roof off of the country and we're finding where that's happening all all over the country.
0: So when people say, when can we get back to normal? We don't really want to go back to normal as it was, because of all that's being revealed here, as you're as you're uh, eloquently pointing out. So, as a prominent leader in the nonprofit sector, biggest organization, how do we not go back to normal after this? How do we tackle these inequalities anew, afresh?
1: Well, you know, I I do I, I'm I'm. I agree with you completely. I'm increasingly saying to folks, um, I don't want to go back to normal. That doesn't mean that I don't want us to get back to being able to reconnect with our families and our our neighbors, and when it's safe, be able to get you know working again and so forth to you know get the economy going. More importantly, get personal income going so I can so I can live. Um, but the way to go here's here's I'll tell you again from a United Way perspective how I'm thinking about it and beginning to write and then we'll start trying to influence our network to influence other networks is we were in United Way one of the driving forces behind the program logic model outcome measurement tool you know this idea that everything's got to line up behind a program and we drifted away over time from that settlement house movement of you know why can't we just look at the Brownsville neighborhood in um, in Chicago or um, or Austin or whatever it is and just put our arms around that neighborhood and importantly listen to the residents of that neighborhood and then bring our resources to bear against what they what they say they need um, and then. These these 1,100 United Ways across the United States have relationships with city government, with county government, with corporations. And we, um, we can actually, the same way that we push those systems to move faster down a logic model approach, I think we can influence ourselves and other systems to go back to a people-centered, community-centered approach. And that means spending our money that way. Um, becoming less restrictive with our money, more, you know, kind of emergent, be more focused on emergent strategies that come out of neighborhoods and from residents. And, um, I, I think, and I guess, secondly, what I think we have to do is we have to keep the light shining on these disparities. Um, I do think that, I do think that, the country is going to be and the world is going to be changed for a generation or at least a half a generation because of this pandemic. And really I, that long. I do, uh, because I think the psychological impact is real. Um, people are afraid. They're anxious. They'll this is a Great Depression moment. This is a um, think of it. We now we've got 90 percent of all Americans um, sheltered in their home. And, uh, some have been there for four or five weeks, likely to be there another four or five weeks. Um, you're not going to forget that. And, and that is, that is, I think I hate to use the term, but that's the opportunity to say, all right, what are we going to learn from this? (laughs) You know, what is it that, um, not just, I don't personally want to be in that situation again. So there's public health things to learn and there's government leadership things to learn. But let's learn the, the question, of, let's learn the lessons around the inequities in our communities. So, so instead of saying I'm in, so focused on the efficiency and the mergers of my hospital systems and so forth, why don't we instead talk about how um, we, ha- we become a part of creating truly resilient communities where people can, uh, can be a part of their own solution but when you're when you're pushed down by economic despair and and racism and lack of affordable housing and so forth and it's hard to get on your feet to even throw a punch so uh, but i don't think i don't think folks are going to forget this i i think this is a great depression moment
0: so when you say how do we move toward a situation where 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 it's people focused people Matter communities like the old settlement houses. Yeah, uh, neighborhoods. It's hard to become to do that on your own to become resilient on your own, which which takes us into this whole area of advocacy. And often, big service organizations like yours stay away from advocacy for a lot of obvious reasons. yeah But it sounds like we have to move toward. Uh, what does it mean for United Way with that commitment and other? organizations that follow you to move toward advocacy, not in a partisan way, but in, that really puts people first. Advocacy seems to be needed, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, what's interesting is that um, it, it, when, you know, I've been pretty hard on us so far, It you know, we have made the shift from seeing ourselves as a fundraising organization to a social change organization and held ourselves accountable to things like high school graduation, right? Rate, uh, rates and reading at grade level and financial stability and so forth. And if you're going to set goals like that, you have to be engaged in public policy. You have to be. Uh, you can't make that kind of change with just funding great programs. So we have been involved increasingly in, in matters of, of policy. There are local United Ways in the U S who, have been involved in ballot issues around funding for early child universal early childhood education and so forth. Um, we are we have had more United Way's actively engaged in um, in the negotiation around the CARES Act in the last month than we've had ever involved in policy. So, really? Yeah. Wow. And, and it's and some of it's enlightened self-interest in terms of being eligible for the small business administration loans, but it was also pushing for emergency food and shelter and for greater empl- unemployment insurance and SNAP benefits and so forth. SNAP,
0: and. tell them what's, why SNAP is so important.
1: Well, because uh, because it provides uh, affordable food for people who are who are uh, food insecure. I mean, we've got millions of people in the US when when kids stop going to school, they, in many cases, stopped getting breakfast and lunch. And, um, and so we're, we're advocating on behalf of the most vulnerable in our, in our world. And I think what's coming next is the advocacy around systems change. And you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting that when, when the Affordable Care Act was passed by Congress in the Obama administration, we as United Way didn't take a particular position on that on that bill. But instead, what we said is whatever you pass um, has to be universal, has to be comprehensive. Once it was passed, we became the second largest um navigator across the country. In other words, we got people to enroll in the program because we're in red states and blue states and red districts and, and blue districts. In 2017, we actively vocally opposed the, um, uh, the tax legislation, the overhaul of the tax system, because not because we thought it would hurt charitable giving, but it was going to increase inequality. Right. And it's done exactly that. Exactly. And so we, we have built our, and you know, there's, we can't be a great society if we're going to be this economically, um, polarized and divided. It's not, We've lost uh, we've lost economic and social mobility in the United States. And so, um, no, we're we're more and more active in policy and advocacy. I think you're right that we're going to we're going to test our stomach for it um, in the next couple of years, because um, there is this this let's get back to normal. Let's open up the country. Let's, you know, uh, let's just get on with it. Uh, the, that rubber band is going to want to snap back to that. And, and we're going to have to, all of us are going to have to push back against, against that and say, no, no, back to normal was not that great for a lot of people. And we need to change. We need to change our communities and, and the, the conditions in which people live. We're, we're, uh, we're going to, we're going to, I'll tell you from our, from, from my perch in United Way, I don't mean that from a, from a higher looking down, but just where I sit um one of the things that i and we can do is try to influence the the 10,000 people who work for united way and the 3 million volunteers and the 50,000 corporations and the 50,000 ngos we work with if we can influence that ecosystem it'll it'll have even larger impact and and advocacy will be a part of it
0: and the the kind of uh, education we need to do like people still get stuck in this old idea of well there's the economy and doing that then there's a service to people who need services and snap as you were pointing out, snap is the most direct way to help families. Most of families who get snap have somebody working in the house even full-time just aren't making enough money to feed their kids but snap payments increasing that also revitalizes the economy because people spend that money right away in food. So putting all this exactly. together, I mean, someone like you at, at, at United Way, Brian Gallagher, could really help educate the country on these aren't different things or separate things. These are all things that must be
1: integrated. Well, look at look at Jim. One of the things that's interesting about the you know as we move toward how do we save the economy, um, one thing economists never agree on anything, but one thing that economists seem to be in agreement on is you got to get cash in people's pockets. <laughs> in other words. Um, you know, if the economy is going to come back the way we all want it to come back, the consumer better be healthy. Um, it's it's great if the stock market health, is healthy, but that doesn't mean that the consumer is healthy. And so that's why unemployment insurance, that's why SNAP, that's why you know these checks going out and so forth. It's why would we why would we think that a community can be healthy if that isn't consistently happening across the board? And outside of crises, I, I, uh, you know, the thing about the economic and social mobility and the, like you say, the, um, you know, SNAP and and public assistance and so forth. I grew up in a family that used food stamps and public assistance, and had, you know, my dad came from Ireland with an eighth-grade education. My mom from Scotland. Uh, he uh, he worked on and off. He got laid off a lot. He had a severe drinking problem. It caused a lot of chaos in the house, but we all tried to work and go to school and so forth. And we needed public assistance. And, uh, and I made my way to college and I put myself through college. And so you think my story is any different than what millions of Americans are struggling through? You know, the only difference in terms of the racism today that, you know, racism, racism's always been with us, but, Man, this, you know, the white kid from Ireland who spoke English, um, man, we love his story. But if the story is uh, a brown kid who doesn't speak English, we don't love that story that much. Um, and we have to get over that. We have to, uh, we have to embrace the fact that the marketplace is, is what we all want to be a part of. I didn't want to see a social worker all the time when I was a kid. I wanted to get a job. I wanted to go to school. Um, but I needed a social worker and we needed public assistance and we needed food stamps. It's this idea that these are two different worlds is just bizarre to me. And um, and I that's why I say when we make it about being people instead of systems, including our helping systems, don't make don't make our families and our individuals line up between eight different um, program doors, public and private, you know, figure out what families need and, and help them get access to it and make it easy for them.
0: I hope people hear that story. I'm glad you told your own personal story because that really is something people can listen to and relate to. Uh, the new Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota, her name is Peggy Flanagan. She's Indigenous, Native American woman, a dear friend of mine, and uh, and she was on food stamps and housing assistance growing up. She was she ran a campaign. I was the kid with the wrong color lunch ticket. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and now yep. she's lieutenant governor of Minnesota as a woman of color. And that story has to break through to people that this are these are stories of people who, really, given a chance and some help, can make an enormous contribution.
1: No doubt. And I think the other sector of our society that has to be more willing and and get uh, more stomach for advocacy, are business leaders, you know, the story you just told, the story I just told myself, our business leaders know that they they know that um, uh, making sure that all people in our country and including people who want to come to our country, um, that that's good for business. And it's good for our economy. It's good for our society. And yet they're not willing to say it out loud enough. Hmm. And they're not willing to advocate on behalf of people that they would like to employ or would like to have buy their products. And and it's not just the United Ways of the world that have to be more, it's not even bold, just just be more willing to advocate. I think we need business leaders as well, because we're allowing not even all political leaders. We're allowing the extreme political leaders to drive the narrative. And, and it's crushing. You talk about how's your spirit, how's your soul? Um, the, the extreme political leaders right now are crushing the soul of the country. Mm.
0: Say that again.
1: <laughs> to me, the extreme political leaders uh, are crushing the soul of our country right now. What do you mean? I mean that um, they drive the narrative. They, um, you know, they're, um, I'll, I'll say it this way. The the extreme on the right um, spend way too much time and effort um, trying to tell me who to be afraid of. And the extreme on the left spend way too much time telling me everybody on the political right are evil. Um, And there are there are dangerous people in politics Um, and most people sit at their sit at home and don't think about um, what we've let me just put it this way. We've lost the the political pragmatic middle in our country. People who actually care about putting things together might. My my favorite quote of all times is by Bobby Kennedy, who said that a person does not show his greatness by being at one extreme or the other, but by his ability to touch each at once. And we are allowing people in the extreme to drive our our politics, our media, our policy, our culture. And we've got to stop it. Um, and we have political leaders who are so mean spirited in some regards, so um, lack empathy in such dramatic terms that um, there's just no sense of of common good. And but I'm confident that the, the vast majority of Americans want something different, but they need they need voice and platforms and vehicles to to act on it. I, I'm just I think we're I think we're allowing um, extreme political leaders to crush us as a country
0: to that muscle of the common good. We started with that you were talking about needs to be reestablished. I'm just struck by your contrast of left and right. They're both were some form of uh, who we're against, who to be afraid of, who must we d- defeat. And you mentioned Katrina a couple of times, and, and I thought of the story I remember from Katrina. I remember with all the flooding, there was a story of uh, one of the many boats uh, that was coming to rescue a family from their house and they couldn't get out of their house. And they, they literally were dependent on a boat taking them away from their house for their lives. And this man and his wife, older man and his wife, and he came out of the house and he was carrying his Confederate flag with him and his last bag of possessions. And, and the boat turns up and it's led by a black rescue leader, big, strong guy who's leading the boat, the, the boat, big, strong guy who's, who's, who's at the front of the boat. And he holds out his arms to this older white man carrying a Confederate flag. And, and the guy was scared and he was so hesitant uh, to put his hand out because he was now embarrassed, yep. carrying this Confederate flag. And it wasn't a look of anger it was a look of oh my goodness, what am I doing? And his wife said, Why do you carry that stupid flag around? <laughs> and this and this black rescue worker, big strong guy with a smile, he says, Come on, man, get in the boat. We're here to help each other. Get in the boat. Yep,
1: yep, exactly. <laughs> and this
0: moment this moment that is 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 this this image and icon of where we have to go here.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And you know, look at it's the crisis, um, life and death that, um, force you together almost because his human instinct is to help, right? I mean, everybody's human instinct at the end of the day is to be helpful and to be connected. And I, I, to, uh, to, to my, to every fiber in my body, I believe that to be true in the vast majority of all humans. And we're allowing a small minority of people to tell us that's not true, and and we've got a we've got to there, there are ways to do it, and it's you know if I, I the way I've the way I've been thinking about it is you know so how do you create social capital in a digital age? You know how do you how do you create this community this common good focus um, both. Um, both face-to-face. So th- what a human interaction you just described. Get in the boat, physically get in the boat. And so much of our interaction right now is is virtual, is digital. Um, and people aren't using the institutions the way we all learn to use our institutions. And we're all trying to figure out how to create that social capital, that that commonness, that connectedness, because that's the antidote for the, the polar... Uh, you know right. the polar extreme. That's that's we we got way more in our army than they have in their army, but we've <laughs> got to find a way to organize.
0: Now this we're getting near the end of this wonderful conversation, but you just said something, just a phrase, but I'm feeling how big a phrase it is. Uh, you said uh, people, not systems. People, not systems. Now. That's a big question, and you run a very big system. would you say ten thousand employees yeah, now we're talking about government and politics. These are big systems, huge systems so here's a big question: How do we move from these systems where it's systems, not people, to people not systems
1: i I look back to when have um, when have we made that kind of um Dramatic transformation in our country, and the way we will do it in the United States is the way is different than the way the Chinese will do it is different than the way the French will do it. The way we do it in the United States is we do it one community at a time with overarching uh, galvanizing resources. And what I mean by that is I, I can't, as the the head of United Way, dictate to every local United Way in the United States, um, that they have to operate a certain way. But I have the ability because of position and just what I see is to influence all of them. And they then have the ability to influence all the corporations they work with and the political leaders they work with and the religious leaders they work with and be influenced by them. And if we you know, we we moved our mission from fundraising to impact in a matter of three or four years. We drove ourselves from funding agencies to funding programs and logic models over less than 10 years. And the world is moving much faster now. We have to change our communities. And then we have to have an overarching um, set of leaders nationally. Um, you're one of them other faith leaders are those national leaders uh the governors i think some governors are now proving to be the kind of galvanizing common good leaders that we need um and if uh one of the things i've learned is that i learned this locally i worked in five local communities for united way in the us i've uh now worked in the us as the us ceo now as the global ceo if i can change united way United way can influence the change of other systems. And so I focus on changing my system and, and then challenge, invite, be open to, um, mayor's changing, governor's changing, corporate's changing, and then we'll force the, the, then we'll force the polar extremes out.
0: Hmm. So here's the last question. This is something you and I have talked a lot about over the years. Um, how how could how can the faith communities where I work and work out of and how can then the service nonprofits like yours how can these two sectors how could we uh, of course we have all kinds of connections and uh, our relationship is one of them but how could faith communities work more carefully and closely with with big service sector organizations how could we help each other and. Even in our advocacy, uh if're fighting for things that aren't partisan, that aren't left, right, blue, or red, but really for the common good, I you mean know, what would it mean it may be, is this a moment is this a moment finally, to forge that closer relationship between the service sector which you represent and that faith only sector which i
1: I represent i think I think it is i you know referencing back to the earlier conversation you and I had this week one of the things you said is our your and my ability to pick up this kind of conversation after some period of time not chatting is because we know each other we trust each other we have a relationship and the thing that the thing that i've experienced and learned in my career is that i will do things that may feel uncomfortable to me if I have a relationship with that other person or institution, if I trust that other person or institution, so I I think what it will take is for uh, service-based secular nonprofit leaders and faith-based leaders to spend more time together to get to know each other. I I was um, it's funny because when again when I worked locally, I I moved very easily in and through the faith communities. Um, it, it's um, because my view of, um, I kind of looked at my work as service to people. I didn't look at it as an, as an institution. So the values that I was hearing from the faith leaders, they made sense to me. <laughs> so <laughs> why well, I, there was common ground in everything we talked about. Now we did run into uh, politics and ideology sometimes um, or, or just politics generally. But once we got to know each other in those communities, we, uh, we found ways to work around, um, you know, zoning, uh, service supportive housing Mm -hmm. units and so forth. I mean, you just, you just, because you could pick up the phone and say, Hey, look, I'm getting some heat from this corporate leader who says, you guys better stop playing politics. And then the, the religious or faith leaders can say, Here's what I'm hearing from my constituency. Well, why don't? Okay, good. That's good. But unless I know that person, um, I can't. I'll just. I'll stay away from it because because I'm afraid that that fire is going to burn me. And so the short answer is we got to get. We have to get to know each other. I I was surprised when I got asked to serve on President Obama's uh, White House Council on on Faith-Based and Community Partnerships and spent a year with mostly faith leaders. I loved it, and I'm, I'm sitting in my home office looking at a photograph of that group and thinking, I know those people. I trust those people. Um, we got to do more of that, Jim. We got to we got to find ways to get our leaders to spend more time together. So when it's time to actually, I don't mean this militarily, but when it's time to go to battle, yeah, we trust each other. We know each other.
0: I was on that first uh, of those councils, and I have that same picture in my home office here. So it really does come down to relationships between us as people in sectors or between those who really are leading systems, but then people have to become more important than those systems. Uh, My brother, it's been a great conversation to have with you today, and I'm just grateful for your work and uh, what you're learning from this and teaching us from it. Uh, We can't just do immediate help and 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 mitigate things but look at what is this showing us teaching us about the way we're going to lead going forward because we're going to be different after this as you say it will change us forever and how we act how we lead how we act and who we act together with is going to help i think shape and change who we are going forward
1: i agree completely and jim it's always um, uh it's uh, energizing for me to 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 talk with you anytime and um you know because one of the things you've done for me and for a lot of people whether you know it or not is as we try to go through that change you you always you've always got a torch in your hand and kind of saying this is the way folks (laughs) you know it's like you know don't get don't get off this path let's um and your ability to um kind of kind of say this is the destination and it's um, and it's uh, it's social justice and it's equity and it's and it can be spiritual and probably should be for most people. But it's uh, but it's galvanizing the the light that, that you keep showing in your writing and your work. So thank you for that. And I just love the I just love spending time with
0: you. Well, that's a me, too. Back at you. Thank you again for joining us to hear more from Brian. Follow him on Twitter at B Gallagher U.W. B Gallagher U.W. For news, resources, and reflections about our current public health crisis, visit sojo.net slash coronavirus. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with your friends and family, even your enemies, as Jesus calls us to love them too. And what better way to love someone than to share a podcast with them with a conversation you think is important? We're available on iTunes, Google Play, or whatever you listen to to your podcasts and after you listen don't forget to subscribe rate and review what you've heard and if you'd like follow me on twitter at jim wallace blessings to all of you for the soul of the nation this is jim wallace for the soul of the nation god bless you